So Steve has abandoned me in my time of need. <laughs> it's just us. <laughs> we can do whatever we want. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, we talked about awareness and, and right view. Mm-hmm. And we have one of the things that we've taught always is checking and, and refreshing awareness uh, okay. by simply checking whether it's there. Do you have any tips or suggestions for refreshing right view? And what is a moment-to-moment carrying of right view? Or do you only do it sort of as a reaction to when something comes and then you say, okay, that, that was fine because under my right view, that's a normal thing to happen. Right. Yeah, so the question is um, that... In our instructions, we get a lot of the ideas of checking, uh, checking to see if the awareness is present. And that seems to also apply to right view. And what are specific ways to really check to see if right view is, is present? Right? How to do that? You know, I think there's, there's a progression in our practice that it does start in the beginning when, you know, let's say we come on retreat and we haven't been on retreat for a while. The quality of awareness is it's pretty uh, cold. It's like, you know, the bell, when you are holding the bell and you ring it, and it, it doesn't vibrate. So you're just trying to get it warmed up. The quantum awareness is like that, that as you tap the mind and you're conditioning the mind for more moments of, of awareness, slowly that becomes becomes the, the habit, the, the, the tendency of the mindfulness is to be there. So in the beginning, we're putting personal effort to check the awareness. And I'd say that's more of what we're doing in the beginning, is just having a moment of awareness. As, as that develops, we can see the importance of actually having the view that's helpful to see what's there. So checking the right view, and I'll get, about, I'll get to just how we, how we should check the right view. Over time, what happens is, it's more likely that we'll need to remind ourselves of right view than to see if awareness is still present. Because at, at some point, the awareness itself has a lot of momentum, and we don't even need to check. We just, um, yeah, the mind is aware, but most likely there's, some, there's a wrong view in the mind, just because of how insidious you know, they, they creep into the mind, and they, they really are ruling a predominant number of mind moments, you know, during the day. It's just, it's, it's all, it covers every experience, just about, from all the ideas that we have about what, what uh, people should do, to, uh, how they should behave, to how our experience should be. Every, every little idea that impacts our experience is a view in the mind, and it's conditioning our experience. And then checking the right view is anything, and there's a lot of different ways of languaging. For some people, it helps to say, this is nature. For some people, it's to say, these are causes and conditions. To reflect, let's say, something that is very repetitive. So many times, for a lot of us, when we sit down, there's a, there's a primary experience that keeps showing up over and over again. A pain, discomfort, an agitation, a state of mind to remember that it's arising in this moment, it's new, that's also having right view. Uh, This thing is doing its own job, it's not my job to change it. So any mind state that would arise, let's say there's something we're, we're watching, you know, some craving, some desire for something, and we tell ourselves, I shouldn't be feeling desire, that's actually a wrong view. What's the right view in that moment is desires here. It has its own nature. Its nature is to want. Can I can I see that? That that's the nature of it. So reminding yourself that it's the nature of something to do its own thing. It's the nature of boredom to be bored. When we really understand the right view of something, we're not fighting its nature. It's like boredom does boredom perfectly. <laughs> it's like it doesn't miss it it doesn't get it wrong you know an aversion does aversion 
perfectly. And as soon as it changes into wisdom, it's, it doesn't change into wisdom. You know, wisdom comes in. But when, you know, the mind state, the thing itself, when we really understand the nature of things, our practice becomes more and more simple. Just allowing what's there to be there. Am I looking at it without, without defilements? Or how am I, how am I actually observing it? So the, so the, the, the checking of the view becomes as, I think, as important, if not increasingly more so, because we get more and more refined at, in the nature of delusion, what that is, what the nature of taking things personally is about. We're already aware, but how am I being aware? How am I experiencing this moment? And the way to uncover that is to, is to explore what, what view is conditioning this moment. So when Sidon, it probably says it in the book somewhere, Sidon says in the beginning, you know, we're personally needing to, to do the practice. Over time, there's momentum. But in the beginning, awareness is leading. At some point, the wisdom is leading. The wisdom is showing us what we need to ask, what we need to do, how we need to reflect to continue to explore what's actually happening in this moment. How am I caught? How am I identified? Right, but that's... We need to do that at the right time, and that's part of you know monitoring for ourselves, you know, you know what what's happening in our practice. And I think what distinguishes the way Utejniya has taken in the Satipatthana and and offers it is it's a much more intuitive process than simply giving, you know, here's the object and keep keep watching it. It's to really understand you know what's happening in the moment. And learning how to, to ask questions that are relevant in a moment of experience to actually bring some fruit. You know, so he'll see, he says, you know, when there's a sense that there's a struggle in the mind, it becomes clear that that's the relevant thing to look at because there's a lot that one can understand about the nature of defilement. And I think, you know, just naturally as we pay attention, it's pretty clear what is gripping us, how we're caught, and that that's a really relevant thing to be watching. You know, we don't just keep watching our little pinky toe, you know, our little toe, and exploring those sensations when, you know, depression and frustration and other dominant things are coming into the mind. It's like, what's what's relevant in that moment? Are the defilements that are presenting themselves? And we know that's the best problem I should look at. And I should bring as much wisdom to that experience. Uh, you know, as we as we can. Does that give you enough detail in terms of how to check? So it's it's all those things that orient us to understanding the experience in the right way to see it for what it is. A mind state is a mind state. It doesn't belong to me. Is this permanent? Is it impermanent? Um, you know, when there's really strong stories, what is a story? Is a story real, or is a story simply a thought? That when it's believed, conditions the mind state, conditions feelings, conditions experiences in the body. You just can see all those things. And you can really see the difference between having a moment of when the view is clear in the mind about what an experience is, the difference between that and when the mind is confused. So every time a defilement is there, right view cannot be there. It doesn't see accurately. Right? It takes it takes the experience wrongly. And wisdom, the nature of wisdom, is to see it for what it is. Oh, this is what this is. So all aspects of investigation that you've talked about before, you're saying they are all aspects of checking of right view. Yeah. Yeah. So the the you know the you know the it is impermanent unsatisfactory, all that, just checking all that stuff, as well as allowing the the experience to happen mm-hmm. without, you know, this, without the, saying this, I shouldn't be feeling this, to summarize these other two. Yeah, yeah, it, it's a little tricky around the things that we know we're supposed to see, mm-hmm. like we're supposed to see it as not self, we're supposed to see it as impermanent. We could say, actually, the right view in that moment is to actually see, oh, the mind is taking this to be permanent. 
Okay, that's what the mind is doing. And we can say, this is the nature of this of the mind in this moment. And this is the reality that this is, you know, this is what's presenting itself. And I have enough confidence that this is an impermanent moment. This is simply new. But it's just to orient the mind in that way. It's not to make the experience, because we can sometimes try to make our experience impermanent. We can try and make it not self. You know, we can try and make it whatever. And really what we're doing is just imposing our wishes and our our wanting, our craving, our aversion onto the experience. So there's a fine line between trying to remind ourselves something in order to just you know, orient the mind in a certain way. And then we want to be very honest. Oh, I am taking this personally. Okay, so this is this feeling of clinging, of identifying. What's the nature of that? So by then asking what's the nature of that, that's the right view again, because we're, we're allowing what's coming up to be held in that way, that just saying, what's this? What is this? What is this, this experience? Is that, is that Yeah. It's that, you know, it's, it's, there's a fine line in, in the Dharma in terms of having the information and imposing information on our experience. You know, and, but every, I just find when I'm, when I'm really reminding myself very simply that something is what it is, it's like, oh, my, my job is not to try and change it. It's not to get in there and do something more about it. Yeah. One thing, so that all made sense to me. But mm-hmm. then, then you said, if a defilement is present, there can't be right view. But that, it also sounded like you were right. saying that if there is a defilement and you see it right. with an open mind, then that is right view. Right. Yeah, this goes a little bit to that question of can you both be mindful and have a defilement in the same moment, and how do you how do you do that? In the Dharma, and this is, comes mostly from the psych, psychology part of the Dharma, the Abhidharma, that talks about the, the, the number of mind moments are so overwhelming in a, in a split moment. You know, it's, it's any moment they say there's 17 trillion. There's just so much happening that I think from a, from a practical perspective, we can be mindful of, you know, what we would say is a defilement. Experientially, it feels like, yeah, I'm watching anger. And as Steve was saying, technically, it's probably this, you know, little oscillation that's happening back and forth. But practically, we've all felt that, you know, there's, there's difficult experiences happening and there's some sense of being mindful that I'm able to be aware of it. And just noticing the real difference in terms of what, what we're working with in terms of defilement is is the defilement an object that is being observed? Or is it in the mind that's observing? When it's in the mind that's observing, we would say that's not right mindfulness at that moment. But we will spend a lot of time doing that very thing, which is watching with a defilement. And that's what we're on guard for, is just to check to see is, is the mind that's meditating, am I watching with craving, am I watching with aversion, am I watching with wrong view? And that's, that's the part that we want to check. Is that? Yeah. So then, you know, so then, you know when, when defilements arise, we notice them. And then we're no, very often we'll notice them with another round of, of an agenda. And then we can become aware of that. And then we can become you know, aware of that state, and that state. this in a note, but um, mm-hmm. I'll just ask you here. Yeah. Um, it's a question about the four foundations, and it's actually, it's kind of what I asked um, Steve on Saturday, but I'm still looking for some uh, understanding around the, the distinction that is made between the four. Mm-hmm. And my uh, confusion is between um, body and feelings. And so 
the sensory input that I have from the, the five, you know, the five traditional um, sense right. gates, right. are those, do they fly? And I know it kind of it doesn't matter in a sense because it's all about the mental objects, but I'm, again, I'm just trying to understand the distinction between the four foundations. So are those, are those experiences of hearing and seeing and whatnot a part of the body? Or, or are they feelings? Or are, does feelings refer to um, more emotional feelings? Right. Yeah. So just wanting some clarity around feelings and objects. Uh, are the sights, sounds, those various things? Are they in the mind door? Where does everything get placed? Um, and some levels, you know, it's helpful to know what we're paying attention to. So, you know, it's nice to just be able to say, okay, this is this category, that's that category. And, you know, when I look at my experiences, and this may be different for you, they don't tend to come prepackaged, you know, saying, I'm this category, you know, and here I am, I'm, I'm now shifted over and I'm in this category. And so it's, it's a, you know, those are, those are helpful things that have been pulled out that the, that the Buddha did you know, in order to say this is worth noticing, this is worth paying attention to, this is worth paying attention to, and they're helpful in our development in the Dhamma. So basically there's one foundation is the body, the next three are the mind. Okay, so the first foundation, body, is everything and everything that's bodily, including sight, sound, smells, that they call that rupa. It's, It's got a physical quality to it. As we know our mind, it's hard to, for me, a little bit distinguish. Oh, it seems like everything is known through the mind door. And it almost becomes like the body arises in the mind. You know, at times it feels like that. Rather than the mind being in the body, there's this feeling as if everything's known in the mind. And that's the nature of knowing. Yeah, everything needs to be known in the mind. You know, one, of the, one of the definitions of the mind is it is that which knows. The nature of rupa, the, the qualities, they don't have that capacity to know. They, they don't know something. It's like a thought doesn't have the quality of being aware. So before you know, we really explain the nature of awareness, we usually think, well, awareness is thinking. But then we realize, no, actually thinking is thinking. It doesn't have a nature to be aware. Awareness is a simple function that is where it it's, knows. That's what it does. It's aware of stuff. The word feeling gets confusing because we don't have a word for Vedana so much in English. Vedana is the feeling tone, pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. And that's all it is. It's just those. And the Buddha made that a specific foundation of mindfulness, of being paying attention to that, because it's so relevant in terms of how the defilements arise. Right? Our mind is very conditioned that when pleasant arises, we like it. When unpleasant arises, you know, we feel aversion to it. And our whole life is constructed around basically trying to seek happiness <laughs> through that, those patterns, those conditioning, and we realize we can't, we'll never achieve a lasting happiness. So at some point, you know, that's that discovery we realize, oh, pleasant and unpleasant and neutral are simply qualities, and they are coupled, very tightly coupled, with craving and aversion and delusion. Right? But they can be met equally with wisdom, with clarity, with simply seeing pleasant as pleasant, you know, and craving as craving, and grasping and clinging, and we see those things. So that's why that foundation was highlighted, and it's considered a mind in the mind category. Emotions come in in that third category of mind, uh, mindfulness of mind. Where the main things he talks about, you know, are named are being aware of lust, you know, craving, aversion, hatred, and delusion and ignorance, and then also being aware of agitated mind, is agitated mind, calm mind, exalted, and naming a lot of the things we would say 
You know, this is where the emotions are. Grief, sorrow, lamentation, and all the wholesome things, all the wholesome mind states. And then, just to finish off, the fourth foundation is the categories of experience that also are very relevant in our practices. That's where we hear about the hindrances, the seven factors of awakening, so categories that are very helpful that we can we can pay attention to. There's mindfulness of dhammas. We call mindfulness of dhammas. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I asked, um, brought this up in our discussion group today just a little bit, but um, I wanted to say something about um, taking in information. Mm-hmm. Um, whether it's through reading, uh, the book that we're reading here, or whatever right. book it may be, um, listening to a Dharma talk, because uh, we, we had this discussion about it's like when uh, Sayadaw talks about talking to someone mm-hmm. where you should be paying attention to, to what's to happening do. with yeah. you right. right, as well as mm-hmm. you know, 50-50 whatever you, however you want to put it mm-hmm. and I'm wondering about taking in this information through reading if it's the same thing because I often find that um, it's really helpful for me when I find some resistance to something I may be reading or something in a Dharma talk right. that I may be hearing and to see what's going on there with me rather than just be uh, lost in the information that's coming. Right? Mm-hmm. To always maintain that, uh, know what's going on here while, while reading or whatever. So... Yeah, it's just a commentary on me if you have anything to say about taking in information. See, I'm I'm of different minds. There's to me, I I relate to the Dhamma. The whole purpose of the Dhamma is, as the Buddha says, is to be free of suffering. And a lot of our activity, as they say, is like. It's as if someone were to shoot you with an arrow, and instead of going, ah, I can take this arrow out and be free of suffering, we start analyzing the wood. What is a what is the arrow made out of? Where what bird did these feathers come from? And how did they bind it? And so you have all these questions, you know. And instead of just really looking straight at the Dhamma of what's happening, and the, you know, the Buddha said, well, I, according to you know the canon, they he taught a handful of leaves that he knew, according to what was said, as many leaves as in the forest, but he's offering what is directly relevant to end our, you know, our, our plight, our suffering. And that's the teachings, that's the whole path of practice. And, you know, in order to practice well, we need to hear the Dhamma. We need to take in a lot of information. We need to hear it many different times. We were talking about that in one group, just the countless number of times we need to hear the same simple instruction. <laughs> it's like we're a broken record. You know, we could just get up here and just pray this tape, you know, press play with instructions. You wouldn't even notice the difference if your eyes are closed. Because, oh, that's new. <laughs> actually said, said it yesterday <laughs> and that's always fascinating if you've been on a retreat and then you go back and listen to a talk like wow when, how did they insert that line because that wasn't in there you know it was, it was there but, um, so there, there's a lot that we do need to hear and I think as long as the orientation if one is really interested in freeing the mind and heart to know what to what purpose am I taking in information is it to become very filled with knowledge in order to be very, you know, well, I've got all this information and knowledge? Or am I using it skillfully? Is it being used to the purpose, you know, of, of the path? And, and people have been very different. Someone like Ajahn Chah, you know, he would always tell his monastics, put away the books, put, put everything down and watch your mind. That's how your, your, your own wisdom is going to grow. And, and then he would give lots of Dhamma talks, you know, to give them information in order to practice wisely. Um, 
But I think what you're, what, you know, that whole exploration of being able to know, so we're, we're keeping our awareness going, we're able to know for ourselves what's happening, even when we're taking in intellectual mm-hmm. knowledge. Because there's no reason why that there needs to be, you know, a pause or a block on our practice when we're taking in information. You know, life becomes increasingly, I find, just more and more integrated the more the practice unfolds. It, it's not like I'm doing my, my Dharma practice now. Okay, now I'm doing my bills. You know, and now I'm doing my shopping, you know, with a lot of craving. And it's better if you do your shopping with you know, the Dhamma and be more skillful and pay your bills with equanimity. <laughs> Generosity. <laughs> May your may you, dear electric utility, <laughs> may you thrive. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, you know, so I just think it's more. It's everything gets included. Everything gets included, and you know, listening to talks is a great place to practice the art of of, of being awake to our own experiences while listening, because our attention, as you're saying, tends to run out. Every time we start listening, how do I actually stay connected? Feeling the impact of what's being said. And in a Dharma talk, we have the space because the words are encouraging that. Right? The basic feeling is encouraging that quality. It encourages all of us to be awake. And conversations, as we know, you know, in life aren't encouraging that. They're encouraging a lot of opinions, a lot of reactions. So when we really train ourselves to, or, or practice, really practice the art of listening, and and then the more we do that with reading also, um, but I, but there's a lot there's, and I would say not having a too strong an idea beforehand of what is right and wrong, how much I should listen to talks, how much I should read. But intuitively listening to yourself and knowing, you know, this is a good phase. I have a lot of energy for practice. Let me just practice. And then other times, this would be a good time to really do some, some reading of suttas or some trying to gain more, more understanding of the Dharma. And, you know, listening to that, you know, there's an interest to, to have that information and that it will also, like everything, it'll go in cycles and change. Um, yeah, so I've gone through a lot of different periods where I thought I'd never be interested in reading this, the suttas. I thought I'm just a meditation junkie. I can sit forever and I love it. And you know, and then I got very interested in reading more about the suttas and different stories, and sometimes getting interested in Abhidhamma stuff. So it just it just flows. I noticed in the retreats, Western retreats, you never hear the teachers talking about reincarnation and rebirth, and yet mm-hmm. the Buddha said that's the whole point of the no wake full path. If you right. don't believe, right view includes belief in reincarnation. Right. Uh, right. Why is it that I don't hear anybody talk about it? I wonder your experience in Burma, what you did with that, because right. it must have been something you had to, to think about. Yeah, yeah, it was very new to me and very, uh, it's, a, it's odd, weird to think about when you're not accustomed to that particular view. And in the West, it's not our dominant perspective you know, in terms of what, what this world is about. So I'd say that's the primary reason it's not talked about and that it's not accessible to, because it's outside of our culture. It's not directly experiential unless you have had an experience of tracing mind moments back and had past life experiences. You know, and a lot of people can report that that seeing, um, but it's not. It's just not. It's, it's not something that right here and now we can say. Okay, now just settle in, relax, tune into your last life. <laughs> and then it's like okay just stay with that life and now let's go one more life back and let's go hang out with the Buddha you know, because that would be great see what he actually was teaching 
Um, so it's not it's not in our direct uh, field to, to to experience. But when you are in Buddhist countries culturally, they have so much ease with those teachings. It's just automatic. It's already a sense of that's the that's the structure of this world. You know, it's so like we for the most part we only experience this dimension. There's one dimension. And now physicists are saying there's eleven, I think. I don't know how many dimensions they found out. I think it's eleven dimensions. And what does that mean? Eleven dimensions. How do we know those? But it's not the experience we have ordinarily of what this world is about, and yet that's that's the way that the mind organizes the world when you're in you know, physical land, the physics, world of physics. Um, you know, and, and there's different ways of holding past lives, different people have different ways of teaching that, that the very principle of one moment conditioning the next moment is a way of understanding the rebirthing of what happens, that if we actually are very mindful, we can see no thing lasts more than a blip. Nothing. Nothing lasts at all. So, and yet here we have this momentum. We don't just keep being reborn. It's like, now I'm a donkey and an elephant and it would be wild to see each other just kind of reforming into different (laughs) creatures, you know. But movies sometimes show us that possibility. So maybe it's, you know, just kind of arise as a new thing. So there's continuity, there's lawfulness, and yet everything, and again, in terms of the physical world, we know now from everything that science has pointed to, that even down to the most minute details, it's emptiness blinking in and out of energy, and just things are in total flux. Nothing, nothing, nothing is solid. So everything is causally conditioning the next moment, and in this theory of of rebirthing, consciousness itself has momentum, and when the body is perishing at the end of life, the momentum of consciousness will still continue. That it's not just brain waves. That the field of the mind has has its own reality. But different people have different different views. And I'd say in the West we're not. We just it's more it's not as familiar to us. I'd say it's not a predominant way of teaching, and and it doesn't seem to be absolutely essential for practicing as skillfully as one needs to, to gain, to gain all the insights. But that's my very limited current perspective. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There is awareness of the object, and mm-hmm. awareness of the mind being aware of the object. Are there different signposts or something that tells you, are you really in awareness of the mind, how do you know you're you're there in mm-hmm. the mind and not just playing a trick? So how to really know that you're paying attention, or that you're becoming aware of awareness? Yes. Is it, yeah, that that phrase is uh, it's a tricky it's a tricky instruction to be mindful of awareness, aware of awareness. Awareness isn't a thing. It doesn't have a place, a location, so it's a it's a function of mind that knows. And I think the more we come to the, the more we become familiar with what it feels like to be aware, that kind of understanding what its nature is is what helps us to know when awareness is present or not, and we're we're understanding awareness is, you know, the, that it's present. So we're not directly like in a hall of mirrors going in and seeing the awareness of awareness of awareness and getting, you know, really caught into that whole process. But we've seen the nature of awareness enough times that now is a familiarity without even having to do anything that, you know, the mind is aware. And I can rest in that quality of being mindful without turning it into a lot of moments of, of objectifying awareness. It's simply recognizing that the awareness is present 
you know, and the real benefit of being able to do that and just it, staying with the quality of awareness is then we can know more clearly what the attitudes are in the mind, what the views are in the mind. And if we're only very good at knowing the object, there's no way to know, you know, how am I actually relating to this thing? Because we're very, we're very fixated on, you know, on the thing. So that's, that's the importance in some ways of getting familiar with the, the knowing mind. Is the mind aware? It's just a light checking. Is the mind aware? So we're not trying to, we're not trying to really land on anything specific when we're saying, you know, be, be aware of, of awareness. It's just more recognizing is awareness present and we're supporting moments of awareness and getting familiar as that, as that gets more and more familiar with us, it's easy to know that the mind's aware. The mind's aware and, and in that sort of, uh, momentum, there's the understanding of what awareness, the experience of awareness, and you just very easily can say, what's relevant, what's worth paying attention to in this moment? And letting whatever experiences come to the mind. Because there's, you know, the momentum is already kind of in place, flowing. I'd love to hear how that doesn't quite answer the question, because it's a hard topic to really answer, and I'm, and I'm not seeing the nodding that would really reassure me that I can, because it helped me to, to language in a way that might connect to it. My mind has moved into trying to figure out how to be aware. Okay. And I'm trying to go, okay, this isn't working. Yes. And I know that it's not working, Okay. but I don't know if I'm aware. Yeah, okay. So I've done this with a couple of groups, and... I think there should be more part of instructions. So the instructions should be, or can be, don't be aware. <laughs> I'm sorry? I've been doing that one pretty good, too. Yeah, right. So don't be aware right now. Really try it. Don't be aware. So don't notice anything. <laughs> Stop being aware. It feels somehow like... But sorry. <laughs> um, but just you know, when you see that, it's just uh, not 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 don't don't try to do anything. Don't be aware. The quality of knowing is a, it's a very it's a it's a reflective quality of awareness. It's it's just a basic function. It knows the thing. Our habit of mind is so strong to do something to be involved in our experience in ways that we actually don't need to be involved. Right? That we see we so much overdue practice. So overdue it. I think so oftentimes we are very aware of everything that's going on and we're trying to be aware. But if I actually come up to you and say, do you, like, what's happening? It's, oh, it's all this stuff and it's, uh, you know, are you aware? No, I'm not aware. <laughs> Yeah, you're probably aware, which is a lot, a lot of wrong attitudes, you know, in terms of what's going on. But the, the that function that Steve was saying that mindfulness is just to remember. When you are remembering what's happening, that's enough. And what probably one needs more of is to remind oneself: this is what's happening. I already know. There's already enough mindfulness because I know what's happening. How am I relating to it? Right? Because it's very, mindfulness is much easier and much closer, I think, to our experience than we realize. But we need the prompting to get familiar with it. And the tendency will be, then we try to overdo it. We try and actually find something. It's actually very easy. A moment of awareness is so easy that if I say, don't be aware, you know, you're aware again. Don't notice that you're hearing. It's like, you can't not notice that. And don't notice, you know, it's like, it's such an easy function. So that's not the real work, but the real work is how to support moments of that without creating tension, without overdoing it, without striving. So that's why we, you know, the words like relax and allow is to help support that natural uh, momentum you know, to build. So just very easy. Who hasn't asked the question? 
having trouble uh, teasing apart like strong physical discomfort or pain, mm -hmm. teasing apart uh, unpleasant from aversion. Yeah. I mean, I just can't seem to do it. I'm just wondering what it might look like. Yeah. So you don't don't try to do that. Don't try too much with that kind of um, thing. Just you can just notice whatever is easy to notice in that experience. You know, I'm feeling the unpleasantness and, and the aversion, and they're just, I really don't like, like this experience. So you're just staying really ordinary with what's, with what's happening. And, and those ideas, there's unpleasant, and there's the aversion, and they're separate, they'll just work in the background. You know, that information, when it lands in the experience, no one needs to, to convince you, but that it'll be so clear, but we do need that information kind of percolating, because it helps to orient the mind, but just really ordinary, very honest, this is what's happening. Your mic... Uh, is it slipping? <laughs> so... <laughs> I see, I'm sorry, I'm not being heard. Now I have to keep projecting. Um, so, uh, did, were you able to hear what I was saying? Yes. Mm -hmm. For the most part, yeah. Um, you know, the word the whole time. I'm so sorry. <laughs> you have to come back for another retreat. <laughs> um, just that those ideas, having those, that information in the mind, uh, you know, letting that, letting that be there. I was going to see if that was going to trigger what I was going to say. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> There's enough to learn from your direct experience and what's showing up and what you can know. Oh, this is what I was going to say. Yeah, that, you can learn enough from that. So if you were to come into my experience, you know, kind of mind hop and come over here, you'd be so interested, right? You'd just go, oh, this is what things are for Alexis. And if we were to swap places, oh, wow, look at this, this is cool. You know, I'm having this, you know, relationship to this experience in this body, and it'd be new for me. So that kind of just simply discovering what's happening, not, we don't really need to get in there and sort out too much. It's very, you know, very simple. Practice can get very simple when we're relating to our experience in the way that that those views that recognize, well, it's not, it's not my job to do more than what I can see. What I can see, that's what I'm, that's what I'm witnessing. Agitation and the struggle and the turmoil. And I can bring in some reminders. This is what's being felt. Can I, can I feel this? Can I leave this? So there's things that you can help support around, you know, having the right view and all that. We've talked about that a lot. But not more than that. We don't need to do more than that to try and find how the unpleasant is separate than the aversion. Just just hang out with it, see it, and learn learn about aversion. Learn about the the mind that's totally tangled in that experience and the suffering of it. And when you're not as clinging to it, but you're now experiencing it more from just oh, I'm aware of it. It's happening, and I'm aware of it. Right. And then slowly these threads get un un unraveled and we understand more and more about the nature of, of these processes. Practice becomes very complicated when we're trying to do it too much. And that's really an easy indicator that, oh, I'm not in the, in the right... I'm not in the, the territory where I belong. You know, I am the meditating mind. That's, you know, my, fear, my job is just checking my layer... How am I relating to this experience? Is the mind still clear? What's being known? Am I, am I knowing that? that I'm, this is what's being known? I'm aware? So it's just staying very ordinary. And these things, you know, as we, as we watch something, we learn something about it. We understand its nature. We visit something over and over again. We start to really understand how entangled 
our sense of self is and all those views that keep us bound to an experience. And slowly, you know, we get some understanding and we have moments of feeling the, the freedom of the Dhamma. I was going to say, um, in, uh, along the lines of the question about what awareness feels like, right. and, and this also, um, what seems to be a realization to me today is that um, that I, I and I, I, I think a lot of us get in our own way, as you were saying, by... Um, Thinking like like thinking that I have to know for sure what awareness feels like, mm-hmm. instead of trusting that I think this is what it feels like right now, and and then just keep watching. I miss things because I'm trying to see if it's the way I think you would describe it or right. something. Right. And and I think I've heard Joseph Goldstein talk about the many, many times in his practice that he thought he had something, he got something, and then two months later he sees it like totally differently. Mm-hmm. And, and, but, you, but if I don't trust what I see right now and keep looking, I might not ever see it right. in the next way. Right. That, yeah, I mean, right. there's a sense of needing to trust our own experience because that's, that's what's revealing itself. That's what is there. And we can use the information that we've heard to try to to continue to you know to orient ourselves, you know, just to check to see okay, is there something else that I can start to notice or some clarification around my experience, you know, that might help to to you know really orient my mind. But there's a fair amount of trusting, just you know, am I aware? And you have to trust that, okay, maybe this is enough. I'm I'm noticing enough experiences that enough awareness. Am I still aware of that? Enough. And, and you know, the Sakantana, I've told a couple of people this, groups, that there is that phrase that it just says, to the extent necessary. So, you know, bear attention or mindfulness and bear attention to the extent necessary. To the extent necessary for bear attention and clear knowing. It's not, you know, being aware of every minute detail and, you know, moment after moment, and, and really get in there and know everything and penetrate. It's a beautiful phrase, to the extent necessary. That when we're paying attention, and we're able to see our experience with enough mindfulness, we can understand the nature of things. We can see the characteristics of a phenomenon of a mind state, and we can see enough about it. <coughs> And we can understand, and it can lead to development of wisdom. Right? And that's really, that's, we don't need to do more than that. And I think the personal effort that does try to do more than that is the reason why we find it oftentimes so difficult to practice in our daily life, wherever we, wherever, however our life is unfolding, we find it so difficult. Because it's using a type of energy that's not sustainable. And it's not really in, in alignment with the natural unfolding of, of these qualities. Trusting that you know, awareness has its own, its own nature. I don't need to do awareness. I just need to check to see if the mind's aware. That's enough. That then becomes the habit that we can live with that quality so that that becomes really the, 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 the habit, the default setting of the mind. And there was really a transition point that became so clear to me that at first I was needing to trigger the awareness, remind myself, and get lost, and you know, over and over again. And it was like this bowl. I remember thinking that my mind was like this bowl, and in the beginning it was like everything was just, you know, nothing was staying, and just reshaping it, reshaping it. At some point, it was like, oh, experiences are landing in a, in a field of knowing. And I said, I'm just not going to try. And the mind stayed stay present. You know, it doesn't mean, you know, free, but it means now I can be present to all the, unfortunately, <laughs> all the mind states, all the habits of mind that come up. And, and you know, so that's, so the momentum is, is there enough that I just, 
need to check, you know, just you know, is the mind still aware once in a while, particularly in really difficult states. And there is more checking the view. The view is in the, yeah, the problem isn't being aware. It's, identif- it's the identification. It's the, the wrong perspective around what's happening. The, the, you know, we just like the practice is always a reflection of our quality of mind. And as our, as our quality of mind is changing, the way we're practicing ought to change. You know, so we're not always just using this, you know, creating a habit out of our mind to the same tool over and over again. It becomes more refined because we're letting our wisdom really develop and start to inform us. What are I, what's helpful right now? What do I need to, to support in my practice? I just want to report back about what I spoke about the, the other day. Okay. Is that then I know I sounded glib when I was telling it, but I realize now I went back to look for it. I couldn't find it in the same way as as I experienced it, and I realized because it was pleasant. Mm-hmm. Well, I didn't realize because it was pleasant how afflicted it really was. Right. And when I got here, one of the things that struck me were, were the amount of images that I had. No, I'm sorry, the, the amount of? The amount. Of afflictions. Of, of, of sexual images yeah, that right, I had. Right. I mean, not, and it sort of concerned me. I, I really didn't know how to relate to it. I, mm-hmm. I never experienced that before. Mm-hmm. Not like that. Mm-hmm. And, and it... Um, it pummeled me. Mm-hmm. And because of, again, because of its pleasantness, but, I, but I, it wasn't something that I necessarily liked, but it was pleasant. Mm-hmm. And so I, as I went back to look for it, to, to read, to, to play with it a little bit, you know, to get in the field of it again, and sort of, taste it and, you know, push it around a little bit. And I said, I couldn't find it. And it made me think that if these afflictions are our afflictions, and if if the suffering is not personal and it's our suffering, then the wisdom is also, that's cultivated, is our wisdom. And I felt that part of what happened was one of the things that's been an amazing experience here is to listen to people's questions and how much I've learned mm-hmm. listening to the questions and the things that people are concerned about and, mm-hmm. and the strength and the commitment here. Yeah. And so I, I want to speak, speak to just the moment of the Sangha mm-hmm. and the wisdom of the Sangha and how meaningful that, that's been. And in looking for it again, I feel f- a freedom that I haven't felt in some time. Mm-hmm. And what it made me realize too is when there's an arising, if we don't control our mind, I mean, we can't control our mind, but the mind is just does what it does, then an affliction can stay with us for however long. An arising can be there for, right? I mean, it can, we're not in control of when it leaves. And if wisdom isn't present, right, right, if wisdom isn't present, if wisdom isn't present, if the conditions don't arise for wisdom, well, wisdom did. This was something that was a long time in the making. It's a big story, sure. yeah. But I feel really grateful mm-hmm. for being in the sangha and the wisdom that's been cultivated here today. You know, over the last five days, and I, and I have a sense of freedom that I haven't experienced in in a long time. Yeah, and so I'm. I just want to say I'm grateful for the teachings and what's been cultivated. Yeah. Thank you. Beautiful uh, offering. And you know, this this is this is sangha, and you know, the Buddha talked very frequently about the importance of sangha because this goes basically against the ordinary conditioning of the mind. It's very difficult to stay with experiences long enough to begin to to really see clearly. 
And, you know, if we came in the hall and every day the hall was empty, we walk outside and no one was around, it would be hard. You know, unless you had a lot of momentum and a lot of faith. But just seeing someone else be a bit mindful, it's going to be so supportive. It's very beautiful. I mean, it's one of those beautiful things. It's a mind that's collected, a mind that's present or willing to be with experience. You know, it's, it's lovely to see it. And we're all, you know, beings that are part of this whole Dharma path that's been being passed down. You know, you're hearing the Dharma from me a little bit, and I heard it from somebody who heard it from somebody who heard it from somebody who heard it from somebody. And back to this person that, you know, had some very profound understandings. And it's like, wow, we can trace it right back, all of us. We're not that many steps removed, right back to... Uh, the Buddha. And you know, the times when the Buddha, just the idea of the Buddha, that is when we see the possibility of freeing our mind and how extraordinary that is, that to see to understand that there's a mind that could have seen everything about the nature of the mind and passed down these teachings in a way that we are still around and many beings are around and able to practice something that works so effectively to end suffering. And it's not a theoretical possibility. It's when one sees suffering lessening, the reality is clear. Suffering has come somewhat to an end. You know, and, and my life is in total disarray and totally deluded and confused and I was tell my Dharma path sometimes, and when I had gone to India, and I was I had gone there, and my two brothers we met up there, so all three of us totally lost, and we were growing our dreads, dreadlocks way out, and wearing the yellow lungis to look like sadhus, and we had beards and just and everything. We were totally mad, (laughs) and it was authentic searching. We were really trying to find something that would you know help us in our confusion. Um, you know, we just kept digging the hole. <laughs> just digging, digging. Uh, you know, I'm then seeing how the mind, through just through practice, this just you see the mind change. You know, we can all see when we arrive on retreat the, the quality of the mind, and if it's a long enough retreat, we can actually sense a little bit of his more wisdom. Oftentimes, on the inside. Maybe you don't notice it, but from from the Dharma, from the teachings, it's so easy to see it. So easy to recognize how, how the mind is changing. And it doesn't take that long. But it takes the continuity to keep it going. You know, to keep it going. And it's rare that if one's practicing, you know, relatively well in a few weeks, in a month that it's not just obvious, the benefit that comes from practice. And that's why when I, you know, when I arrived to the center of the and it was clear I was learning more about myself and life and what was really meaningful than I'd ever learned before. And it was just like a download. It was all, you know, so much that was being understood. There's no better place, you know, at that time than I wanted to be because, well, you know, what else is there for me to really what benefit, what more benefit do I get? And those, you know, that kind of energy can come sometimes when we really want to know about the nature of this mind and heart and how is it that we're able to, to suffer and how is it that we're able to find freedom. You know, as you say, it's just, it is universal. This, these possibilities are everywhere and every human being we see, you know, it's, sometimes like a tragic feeling that it's so close, freedom is so close to us, you know, to everyone, and yet we can live lives so tormented, you know, filled with so much suffering, and when we know that the cause really is coming from our own confusion, you know, just so much compassion can come, so much, yeah. With patience. Mm-hmm. I realize as I listen to everyone how much, how many, but it's the same question. 
And they want to ask every question that everyone's at, that everyone's mm-hmm. already asked. And so it's been so powerful yeah. to, to share the space yeah. with people that you know want to know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's all nothing gets closer to us than our own experience. And nothing gives us greater freedom and ease than having a mind that is increasingly growing the wholesome qualities. It is an experience, experiencing reality through the lens of confusion and the distortions of perception and wrong understandings. So, you know, we, we experience, we're the first to experience the defilements, and we're also the first beneficiaries of experiencing the wholesome qualities, and the world around us, you know, benefits. So, okay. Is supper time. So thank you for your questions. I don't know how to bring a Q and A to an end. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.